Hey, the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails, and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof. You can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. If you're like me, it's now the end of the day, and you say, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to have for dinner? Well, here's the solution. Eating better is easy with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You're going to have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Flexible for your schedule, get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive then take out, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash smirconish50 and use code smirconish50 because you'll get 50% off. That's code smirconish50 at factormeals.com slash smirconish50. Get your 50% off. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Book Club with Michael Smirkanish. Hi, it's Michael Smirkanish. As a Sirius XM and CNN host, I'm known for speaking, but frankly, I read for a living. I need to know what to say, and so I consume over two dozen newspapers and websites daily. I read opposing views and studies and court cases and orders and op-eds just so I can discuss current events on radio and television. But my favorite reading? Books. Old school. And my favorite interviews? are with book authors. Book Club with Michael Smirconish is now in session. Alexandra Sabruda has just published a book which I devoured. 26 Seconds, a personal history of the Zapruder film. This is Alexandra. Alexandra, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I warranted a footnote in your book. You could have you could have referenced me as one of those who has appropriated your family name because truly a part of my lexicon. If there's something and it doesn't even have to be a video, but if there's something going on that I think we just need to slow down and analyze, dare I say, frame by frame, I will say and my producers can back me up. I'll say, let's Zapruder this. And I just assume that everybody knows what we're talking about. Well, <laughs> I guess we, they do. We refer, of course, to the most famous home movie of all time shot by your grandfather in Dealey Plaza, capturing the Kennedy assassination, November 22, 1963. Why write this book? You know, 
I grew up in a family where we really didn't talk very much about the film. It was a very painful um, sort of association for my grandfather, and that kind of made its way down to my parents and to us. And so I found as an adult that I had a lot of questions about the film. And as you pointed out, you know, our name has become kind of part of, of an American vocabulary, even a world vocabulary. And there were a lot of questions for me about what our family legacy was and what the history was of the film and how our family had um, influenced that history. So as a writer, you know, in, in certain ways, it was a natural fit. It also had to be a search for, for, for family roots and a better understanding of of your own background, because correct me if I'm wrong, you were five at the time and, and you didn't know your grandfather. I was actually, I wasn't born when the Kennedy assassination happened. My grand, my parents had just been married and had come to Washington, but my grandfather died when I was an infant. And so I didn't know him. And you're quite right that, you know, I grew up really missing him, you know, and sort of the, the kind of having him in my life. He was very much loved inside our family. And he was sort of known as a, a very funny um, clever, eccentric, talented person. And so for me, learning about this part of his life and investigating his past was a way of, of getting to know him. And of course, there also was the element that my father died 11 years ago, and I was very close to him. But the role that he played with regard to the Zapruder film was certainly something that I didn't know anything about. So there was a way in which I was sort of learning about a whole other side of my father's life um, as well. Before we get to the film itself, tell me about Abe in more detail. What was his station in life November 22 of 63? Why was he in Dealey Plaza? You know, he was somebody who in many ways sort of fit the archetype of the germ- of the sort of Russian Jewish immigrant. He had come to this country at age 15 from Tsarist Russia, very, very poor, had experienced anti-Semitism and, and persecution um, in Russia, and had made good. He went to night school to learn English. He, he went to work in the garment industry. He never had a formal education at all, um, and gradually worked his way up kind of on, you know, through his wits and his, his brains and his abilities. And by the time... Um, November 22nd, 1963, rolled around. He was a middle-class dress manufacturer in Dallas, Texas. He had, you know, been relatively successful. They had a nice house in the suburbs, and he had really made good. And meanwhile, you know, his daughter had gone to SMU. Um, my father had just gone to, was in, had just graduated actually from Harvard Law School. So, you know, he was somebody who I think, um, you know, really represented the very best of, of the American dream. And the reason he was on Dealey Plaza was because his dress manufacturing company was just adjacent at 501 Elm Street. So it was sort of positioned right at the end of where the motorcade was going to be. And he was a devoted Kennedy supporter, loved President Kennedy. And he was someone who had been taking home movies for, for already 35 years at that time. So it was sort of the, the perfect combination of place and um, you know, and his interests and his his um, his love for the president, I think, that made him be there at that time. He shoots, or maybe I should say records, 486 frames of silent but color film. It's an 8-millimeter bell and howl, which means something to me because I can remember I, I had a, an, an aunt who gave to me actually a Super 8 recorder mm-hmm. when I was a kid and I recorded mm-hmm. fam. But one of the things that you address in the book is that Abe Sapruder 
in recording the Kennedy assassination was uncanny in his ability to remain steady. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's it's a sort of astonishing thing, you know, when you you see the film and you sort of take it for granted now that that there is this film, but if you sort of put yourself in his place standing up on this ledge and watching this unbelievably horrific and traumatic event unfold in real time before his eyes, it is um, you know, sort of endlessly amazing to me that he didn't lose his balance, that he didn't drop the camera, that he didn't lose his composure. But I think he was a very, um, I think he was an unusual person. And I think that he had um, a sort of, I don't know that, I don't know that it was a sense of history, but a sense that something of manifest importance was happening and that, and that he needed to, to record it. Obviously, there were others in Dealey Plaza. There were others who were recording that moment. But what, no one else captured it the way your grandfather did? Yeah, I think it's the vantage point has a lot to do with it. I mean, of course, there are other, um, as you said, there were 21, you know, there were 21 other photographers on Dealey Plaza um, and, and in the environs that day. So there are many still images and there are many moving um, images as well. But it happened that where my grandfather was standing, he was able to, you know, really capture um, what appears to be the whole thing from beginning to end um, over that, that 26 second period. He knows what he has. He goes home. He shows it to your grandmother. Right. Well, before that, he, you know, that that very day um, after he got off of the ledge, he was quite distraught and, and anguished, screaming and crying and, you know, saying that they had killed the president when, of course, no one knew for sure that the president was dead. But he did because he saw it so clearly through the camera lens and then spent the rest of the day really trying to get the film developed, both with the help of the Secret Service and the Kodak Labs and a number of other people who were, you know, going through this this process because, of course, developing 8mm film in those days was not, you know, easy. It wasn't like an, an iPhone where you instantly could see it. They had to go through a whole process and then duplicate the film and then get those duplicates processed back at the Kodak Labs. So it took all day, and by the end of the day, he... Um, had given two copies of of the film to the Secret Service and then returned home with the original and another duplicate. And that's when he showed it to my grandmother and my uncle. And my aunt was also at the house, but she was too distraught to, to be able to watch it at the time. I promise we're not giving it all away, but one of the amazing details in 26 seconds is the fact that the Secret Service did not seize from your grandfather the original, or at least at that moment, the projector. Yeah, it's it's pretty astonishing in retrospect. Of course, it says a lot about the time, not only about the disarray in Dallas, the shock, the sort of total lack of preparation for anything like this, but also just the innocence of the time. You know, the, certainly the head of the Secret Service, Forrest Sorrells, who was um, – you know, dealing with my grandfather that day could have simply taken the camera and my grandfather would have absolutely given it to him with no hesitation. And who knows what would have become of, of the film. But instead, he simply, you know, sort of tasked my grandfather with having it processed and duplicated and requested copies. And that decision was definitely a fateful one because it meant that then the film was sold to Life magazine the following day. And, you know, all of the things that, that followed from that, there were there were a great many unintended consequences that came from that decision. This is Alexandra Zapruder. The book is titled 26 Seconds, A Personal History of the Zapruder Film. I want to read a paragraph from page 115 of the book. 
Abe Zabruder was in this moment, like many people who face a moral dilemma, the choice is not a binary one to be a saint who doesn't care about the money or to be an opportunist who only cares about the money. Instead, he was a human being with conflicting feelings, opposing desires and moral imperatives that clashed with practical realities. He had gotten where he was in life by working hard, conducting himself ethically and traveling the most American path to success. But in an irony that no one could have predicted, he would gain financial security, not in this uncomplicated way, but in a situation fraught with moral compromise throughout the course of the book. You you discuss the you know the, the criticism that he had to deal with, that the family had to deal with in terms of what then became of the film. As you point out, he sold it to life uh, for a, a, a hefty sum, even mm-hmm. in those days. And then and then later there was a battle with the government. But speak to that issue and and how you went about addressing it in the book. You know, this was one of the most important aspects of of writing the book for me, and it was one of the biggest reasons why I hesitated to do it in the first place, because it's very difficult to um, talk about money and to talk about moral dilemmas like this uh, without being defensive. And I really went into it, I think, with wanting to understand the criticisms that had been leveled at our family and wanting to understand where people had come from, were coming from, and wanting to really delve into you know, how these moral dilemmas played out for my grandfather and then for my father and for the rest of us. And I think, you know, no one in our family wanted our grandfather to have taken the Zapruder film. And anyone would have gladly um, changed the course of history if we could. But once we were the guardians of it, it did come with tremendous complexities and problems. And, and that is something that I wanted to trace through the course of the book and really show how, you know, what can seem like a simple history has a much more complicated um, set of issues around it and really to delve into those. Alexandra, I get that if I live in an area that my local community needs for a hospital or a school or a highway, that mm-hmm. they have the ability to take my house and, and give me fair compensation. I still don't understand that I read the book. I still don't understand how the government takes ultimately, the film, which leads to the arbitration that you then describe. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, this was a decision that the government was able to make. The government can take any private property that it wants if it determines that it is in the interest of the American people. And the film, you know, the the issues around the taking of the film in the 1990s were so complicated. I mean, one of the things that made it possible was that we had put the film in safekeeping in the National Archives. Had the film been in our house, I doubt that, you know, we would have been stormed by, you know, federal authorities coming to get it. But it was in the possession, in the holdings of the federal government. And so there was this tremendous ambiguity about, you know, is it, is it, does it belong to the government or does it not? Should the government take it or should it not? And at the end of the day, you know, it was the decision of the, the, you know, Assassination Records Review Board that, it was essential for the American people that the original Zapruder film be permanently in safekeeping in the National Archives. And that's that's what they decided. And we certainly, um, you know, didn't didn't raise an objection to that, but then went through the next steps in the process, which is to try to establish just compensation. I think that Ken Feinberg is one of the most brilliant individuals I've ever met. I forgot 
that he had played such a critical role in the arbitration. Ultimately, a $16 million award was reached in 1999. And in the book, you say, quote, it was it, relative to the, the Zapruder film. It was a burden. It was an intrusion. How so? Well, you know, I think anything that thrusts a private individual or a private family into the public eye and then brings with it such unprecedented questions and complications and decisions that then have consequences it that that is sort of the that is a burden and i i my feeling about it is that you know people have often said to me well would you call it a blessing or would you call it a curse and i always say you know i think of it as a burden and a responsibility and one that our family endeavored to the best of our abilities to take very seriously and to do the best we could and we didn't always make the right decisions. We're not perfect people, but we we did the very, very best we could. Do you think there would have been a taking but for Oliver Stone? It's a great question. I mean, I don't know. Oliver Stone's movie certainly did lead to, you know, a public outcry to release um, and make public the records related to the Kennedy assassination that were in the holdings of the federal government. So I think that certainly was the in this instance that was the thing sort of triggered and set in motion everything that ended up happening related to the film but eventually it might have happened anyway if it hadn't been for Oliver Stone it might have come about through some other means at another time and finally i promise i won't give it all away but seinfeld i mean come on that was like <laughs> it was iconic right it was it was iconic and you know our family I think we were always the most surprised when things like this happened, you know, because we thought of the film kind of in our own interior way. And it was always surprising to realize just what the reverberations were and just how widely the film had influenced people, you know, of all different walks of life. And so that was certainly a moment, I think, for us where, you know, here we were watching Seinfeld and seeing this show that, as I wrote in the book, we loved, we, we loved of course, Seinfeld, you of know, course. we're devoted. Right. Um, and there was our, you know, our film, our family's name um, being, you know, being the subject. So it was certainly, it was certainly surprising. And as I said in the book, it was one of the few times that I saw my father laugh about anything that had to do with the film. All right. You get to rein me in. I, I'm, I'm asking Alexandra Sapruder. Do you want me to remove it? From my vocabulary, should I stop saying, I will honor your wish? Do you want me <laughs> to stop saying, Sapruder the tape? That's very, very, very nice of you. No, I'm, I'm, I have no interest in censoring anybody for saying, you know, for using the term. I mean, look, it's, it's part of the American lexicon now. And I don't, I think, you know, part of what I wanted to do in this book was to look beyond the the sort of easy use of the term and share the story in a deeper and more nuanced way. But no, it certainly doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't offend me and I don't object to it at all. Feel all right. free to use it at will. That's it. Mark the tape. Hey, um, <laughs> parenthetically, I'll just say the production values of your book as one who has published books. I thought it was really well done. And what I particularly enjoyed is when you open the jacket, there are photographs of the family movies. Yeah, that is a- really cool. Thank you. You know, I, I love that. And what ended the way that that came about is that I brought my grandfather's home movies and those original boxes home from Dallas while I was doing this research. And when I got home, I opened the suitcase and I saw the boxes and they were so amazing looking that I snapped a picture of them. 
and sent it off to my publisher and said, you know, wouldn't these be great for the for the end papers? Because they really, you know, they capture that feeling that is so easy to forget that the film was a home movie, first and foremost. You know, it was personal to our family and it was it was t- undertaken in this spirit of something that was so kind of humble and that that, you know, so many people did. And really wanting the book to have that feel and have people always remember that that's, you know, that's the spirit in which this this story was told. I think it's a great tribute to your grandfather. So congrats on writing it. And thank Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's Alexandra Sapruder. There you go, gang. I shall continue to say Sapruder the tape. I have her blessing to do so. Boy, she was fantastic. The book is tremendous. I can tell that you both enjoyed it. But oh, she, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, that was just one of those interviews that I just kept wanting both of you to keep talking. I just thought it was so fascinating. Well, can and I? And I didn't, yeah, I didn't go ahead, know, Michael, please. I didn't know the backstory of the government wanting the tape and how that all came to be in Ken Feinberg. I had no idea. Do I so have Do I have time to expand? Tell me a little bit more, Dan. Please. Can I? Okay. Or so Dan's let me, in charge. I, I, I also feel that when I bring an author like that onto the program, like, geez, don't tell the whole story because and I'm not telling the whole story. The book is the book is worthy. But let me fill in a couple of pieces if I, uh, if I might. So Abe Zapruder for all the reasons that she just described, is is on or in Dealey Plaza that day, and, and he records it, and he knows what he has, and makes, uh, makes it known to law enforcement. The Secret Service, although they participated in quickly having copies made, amazingly, in that era, didn't take the original. And so when he goes home that night, you know, to his wife and his kids and what another relative, he shows them the original. Just imagine, imagine a guy who goes home. I think he was 58 at the time, you know, goes home after this unbelievable day and runs this movie. And at the beginning of the tape, there's family footage because he's a home movie guy. Immediately, all the media want that film and he makes a decision that it is life magazine with which he will do business dick stoley i think was the the guy from life who reached out to him and in that era you know life was the publication he sold it for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars which is the equivalent of a million two today if you remember lee harvey oswald shot and killed a dallas police officer who recognized him that day jd tippett and the first $25,000 that was given by life to Abe Zapruder, he donated to a fund in the name of J.D. Tippett. So life now owns it. And if, if you want to use it from 63 to 75, if you want to use any image from the Zapruder film, you've got to go to life and strike your deal. And the family then makes a decision that they'd like to own it. They'd like to have it back. And in 1975, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me as the reader or to Alexandra as the the author of the book, Life sells, quote unquote, the Sapruder film back to the family for a dollar. For a dollar. So now, if you want to use the Sapruder film, you've got to go to the family. And they set up a, you know, a, 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 an entity, limited partnership, corporation, who knows what it was. And they have to set up a process for these requests to come in. 
So, TC, if you are Oliver Stone and you're going to do the movie JFK and you want to include, and of course you want to include because of the conspiratorial nature of the film, you got to be able to say something about the Sapruder film. So you need family permission. You follow me? In order to incorporate into the movie JFK the sequence. So it's not as if Oliver Stone called Alexandra's family and said, hey, I'm Oliver Stone and I want to do a movie of a conspiracy based movie about the Kennedy. No, 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 no. The way in which Stone goes to the family is to say, first of all, it's not even Stone. It was it was an entity acting on his behalf. And he says, uh, uh, I'm doing a JFK biography. And they license him to use the sequence and he pays. Well, this is a good question. A little trivia for the two of you. If if Oliver Stone in the 90s wants to use the Sapruder film as part of his movie JFK, and they don't know, of course, the movie significance, but they know that they've got Hollywood interest. You know, they, got, they have constant requests, students making requests, academics making requests, commercial uh, print and so forth. But what do you think Stone has to pay to use it? Take a guess. More more than students. More than students. Good. But any ballpark number you want? I, I literally have no idea. Okay. Dan? No. Uh, 250 grand. Okay. 50 grand. 50 grand. So Stone, okay. so Stone pays, but there's no wrong answer here. So Stone pays 50 grand, and, and Stone, Stone's movie, and I can remember because I was very close to Arlen Specter, and Arlen Specter gets hammered by Kevin Cosner, right, in that movie. Sure. And, and so... Um, that movie gave new life to all of those Kennedy assassination conspiracy claims. And it's after, and this is why I asked Alexandra the question, it's, it's after that movie that now the government seizes the Sapruder film. Because they say this has got to be a part of national, our national history, and we, the government, need to own the original. In the same way, it was a takings event, much like, as I said to her, you live in an area where they need to expand the highway, and they take your house, or they take a piece of your yard, and now they've got to pay fair compensation. Well, how do you determine what's the fair compensation for the Sapruder film? And that's when they turned to Ken Feinberg and others to arrive at a figure. So in 1999, $16 million gets paid to the family the descendants of Abe Sapruder for the film that he recorded in 1963 uh, in Dealey Plaza. And today, you know, the, the original sits in the National Archives having been paid for by, by taxpayers. Because they wanted the original. They had a copy. Yeah. Oh, there's, there's several, there, there, there are several copies. Uh, $16 million. $16 million. Incri- I, think, I think that's an extraordinary amount of money. Yeah, no, but but now, but, but you can you can also understand how there was commercial interest in it, and so I do. I understand. It's all not ex- of it, it's not exactly a, a copy of it. Why do you have to pay sixteen million dollars for the original? Because TC, they thought it was such a part of American history that they that they wanted to possess the original, the real thing, the real the real thing. Yeah, wow, great book, really an interesting book. Wow. All right, there you go. Book Club with Michael Smirconish. New episodes drop Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen to the Michael Smirconish program weekdays on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 and anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Spring? Is that you? 
Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.